Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, April 29th. We begin with our weekly Ask the Doctor series. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, answers your COVID-19 questions. Next, we flip through the pages of a timely new book titled In Good Hands, Remarkable Female Politicians from Around the World Who Showed Up, Spoke Out, and Made Change. We catch up with the author, Stephanie McKendrick. Then we get the latest on the devastating flood in Fort McMurray. We hear the heart-wrenching story of former Wild Rose leader Brian Jean, who has lost not one, but two homes to natural disasters in a few short years. And finally, what happens if you have an eye emergency during the coronavirus crisis? We speak with a local optometrist on the resources in place during the pandemic to focus on your eye health. 8-11 on the morning news and uh, very excited with our continuing series uh, every Wednesday. And we've been getting your calls, texts, and emails over the past couple of weeks asking uh, for answers to your COVID-19 questions. And that's why we bring on an expert each and every week. Joining us is Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thanks again for carving out this time for us. We really appreciate it. And again, uh, we've uh, set it up that you're going to give us uh, short answers in plain English, which we appreciate. (laughs) And we might have some repeat questions because we've been doing this for a handful of weeks. So here's the first one. I was wondering why Dr. Hinshaw said the virus is not airborne despite conflicting information. How is it different than the measles, which is airborne? Yeah, that's a great question. So this virus can move through the air, but in little droplets. So when somebody coughs or, or sneezes, and those tend to fall out of the air pretty quickly. Measles, on the other hand, truly gets into the air. It it doesn't need any liquid, so it can hang in the air for hours and hours and hours in a given room. So it's a little different. It still moves through the air, but it's not airborne. It can't hang around in the air by itself. Okay, we get this question lots. People love their pets. Can pets, dogs, cats, can they carry COVID and transfer it to people? Yeah, so that's a great question. They can carry COVID. We've seen cases where pets have been infected, but we have no evidence and we've never seen a pet give it back to a person. So the pet seems to be what we would term a, a dead-end host. So they can get infected, but they cannot pass it back to us. we got a double-part question here. What are long-term impacts to organs and which ones? Uh, and for how long would that be an impact? And what percentage of cases are asymptomatic? see some organ impact with things like, for example, kidney, lung, and even heart. Uh, How long-term, we're not sure because people are just barely recovering from this now. So it does look like there can be some lasting lung damage in the most severe cases. And in some patients, we are seeing things like a heart attack. So that can lead to some permanent damage as well. But the vast majority of people who recover seem to have no permanent uh, damage. Uh, The percentage of, of asymptomatic cases that's a great question and it's something we're still learning about we we can't really get a a a good grasp on that number without uh randomly sampling people so randomly testing people because the ones that don't have symptoms if they don't get tested we don't ever know they're infected so we do know that there is a significant percentage they may transmit the virus but we don't know exactly how many because we haven't been doing random testing doctor why don't we just test everybody right away yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it, it is simply the throughput and the manpower to do that. As you can imagine, here in Alberta, we have millions of people, and, and we're doing 4,000 tests a day. So just to get through that number of tests would not be feasible with our current uh, strategy or infrastructure. Okay, playing outdoor sports like tennis, for example, could the virus be left on a tennis ball? So a tennis ball probably 
difficult. Um, but you have to remember that if we're doing things like tennis and everybody grabs the same latch to get into the tennis court, mm. well, that's a common place for people now to touch and an easy way for the virus to transmit. So it's these areas we tend to worry about, these little common touch points or, or, or bottlenecks, railings, doorknobs, things like that, really make it easier to move the virus around. And we don't even think about for sure. Okay, That's exactly it, yeah. Question about stats. Uh, if a person dies from cancer but had, well, if sorry, if someone has cancer, is diagnosed with COVID and then dies, would that death be reported as a COVID death or a cancer death? Yeah, that's something we'll probably have to get a, a, a medical expert to comment on. The general rule, though, is that if you have an underlying condition but then develop basically symptoms of COVID, so difficulty breathing, uh, these things we're seeing like blood clotting, so problems with kidneys and other organs, you would tend to be classified as a COVID death, but there, there are other severe uh, underlying conditions out there, and you would need to talk to uh, Dr. Hinshaw about how those are classified. Okay. Here's another one that keeps coming around, uh, so still on people's minds. If you had COVID-19 already, could you get it again? trying to figure that one out currently um all of our early evidence suggested we were protected but we are starting to see what appears to be cases in areas of the world where the disease had previously existed and was cleared from the community such as south korea and we're seeing people get apparently reinfected what we haven't ruled out is that these people have maintained the infection the whole time just at a really low level and it came back versus they actually cleared it and we're reinfected. But this is something that people are actively studying, and this will be critical to understanding who in our community may be protected. Okay. Uh, Can a person who's recovered from COVID-19 still spread the virus? So if you have completely fought the virus off, no. Uh, There will be a short period of time where your symptoms are feeling better, but you still have enough virus in your body to spread it. That's why most guidelines are uh, to wait a week or more after symptoms have stopped before you reintegrate back into the workplace or or the public. Someone asking, why is it so tricky to make make a vaccine for COVID-19, and is it more so than other virus vaccines? Yeah, so this one is definitely harder than, than our common ones, such as measles or flu. And it's because the virus does a lot of weird things. It actually can hide its little binding receptors on the surface of the virus behind a coat of sugars, which makes it really tough to target our immune system against this thing. But we are seeing some encouraging results from early uh, veterinary trials and animal trials, and those are going to form the basis of our human one. And we've now seen more than 30 formulations go into clinical trials. So hopefully we'll have one soon. Now, I hope I'm saying this one medical term correctly, but you'll correct me, I'm sure, doctor. Why has the Alberta government refused to allow the use of quinine or quinine and uh, zinc treatments when these have been used around the world to save sick and dying patients? Yeah, so I think the, the reports that they've been used around the world to save sick and dying patients are really just individual uh, uh, case stories. We have, for example, conducted, and we are currently in Alberta, conducting a hydroxychloroquine uh, chloroquine study here in the province. But early results from other studies have shown that although they may be safe, they're, they're offering at this point no protection in these small focus studies. And that's why we've gone to these larger scale to see if we're missing a patient population who may benefit from them. Okay. But right now there's no clear evidence. Okay, fair enough. Lots of questions about masks. Can I yeah. wear a homemade cloth mask all day or is it just good for so long? So as long as you're not touching the outside to your to your face or your skin, you can wear them for most of the day. I think one of the questions is if it starts to get wet, uh, moist, then it's not that it's it's playing with the virus anymore, but it's providing a, a 
more or less a petri dish for bacteria to live too. So mm-hmm. not the cleanest thing. So it does recommend changing, you know, when they start to get dirty or moist or wet. And just wash them in soap and water, we know, is the, is the best thing, right? It's yeah, the soap. Yeah, if they're cloth masks, just straight in the, uh, in the washing machine and they will be perfectly clean when you're done. Early on in the pandemic, we heard a lot about the cases on the cruise ships, and here's a question surrounding that. On the Diamond Princess cruise ship, the COVID infection rate was reported as less than 20%. Given the crowded environment, how did 80% of the passengers seem to avoid infection? Yeah, it's a great question. To be honest, we don't have a a concrete answer. What we've learned, though, is that this virus through droplets can move, for example, through air conditioning and and ventilation systems. So I would imagine on a ship like that, not all cabins are ventilated on the exact same air duct. And the further away you are from an infected case, the less likely it is for a droplet to be transmitted. So uh, within a a large ship like that, you would see clusters uh, surrounded uh, around an initial infection and the neighboring people perhaps getting infected. Okay, we've got an essential worker who says they're not being limited in their social distancing at work. So should they be tested for COVID-19 just in case they're a carrier? Yes. So in places where we cannot socially distance and we're on a front line, we should be looking at testing. And I know Alberta has brought in enough testing capacity to ensure people in the healthcare settings can be tested. The other one is if you cannot maintain the physical distance, this is where things such as masks and hand washing play an essential role to really help mitigate the, the, the closer proximity of people in the workplace. Okay, here's the next one. We hear of a recovery rate for COVID. What is the recovery rate for those on a ventilator? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, basically, that boils down to the, the number of people who uh, unfortunately passed away in the intensive care unit versus those who are released. And I'm, my understanding of the numbers is we haven't had a breakdown on, on how many fatalities there were in the intensive care versus um, uh, other fatalities in the province. It's important to note, though, in Alberta right now, there's only about 20 people in the intensive care unit. So it's a very small percentage compared, unfortunately, to the number of fatalities we've had in the province. Dr. Janney, can we expect this COVID-19, this virus, to come back year after year like the flu does? Unfortunately, I think that's probably what we're looking at right now. Unless a vaccine ends up being so good that it blocks 100% of infections, this looks well entrenched now in our in our community, and we will probably see a, a seasonal uh, uptick in it in the fall. And hopefully, people that have either been exposed and/or vaccinated will be protected for years to come. I'm uh, pulling one off the text line. The million-dollar question to end with here, uh, doctor. Yeah, when a vaccination is available, should a vaccination be mandatory? So this extends far beyond the COVID argument. And although we encourage everybody to be vaccinated, we do recognize there are people with personal beliefs, but there are also people with medical conditions that prevent them from being vaccinated. And that's really where it's essential that their neighbors do get vaccinated. So the more people that we can get voluntarily vaccinated, we can protect those, even the ones who cannot physically be vaccinated. It's impressive we have yet to stump you. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Anytime, guys. Take care. You betcha. Dr. Janney will be back next Wednesday. It's Ask the Doctor. We do it each Wednesday at this time. He is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C.
Chief medical officers are leading Canada through this COVID-19 crisis, and a whole lot of them are women. We're also seeing female leaders of countries around the world getting recognition and respect for their handling of the pandemic. To talk more about women in high-profile jobs, we're joined by journalist and author Stephanie McKendrick, who has a new book out called In Good Hands, Remarkable Female Politicians from Around the World Who Showed Up, Spoke Out, and Made Change. Hi, Stephanie. Hi there. Boy, the timing of your book could not be any better. When did you start writing this? Um, I started it uh, late in 2017, and uh, throughout uh, 2018 and into 2019, I um, most of it was done in 2018, to be honest. Wow. So again, ahead of the curve, as Sue mentioned. I'm wondering what the inspiration was for you to put pen to paper on this topic. Well... The, the issue of women's leadership is one that I've long been uh, following and promoting uh, women's leadership. I was uh, in charge of a not-for-profit organization for 16 years that helped women advance in their careers in the uh, communications and technology and broadcasting field. And so women's political leadership has always been an area of interest. And uh, so I was having a conversation with uh, Lisa Lyons, who's the publisher at uh, Kids Can Press, and they have a new uh, young adult imprint called Loft. And she said, you know, we really should write a book about women politicians, women leaders. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how we that's how we got there. It's so obvious. But, you know, I've seen a change from, you know, when, you know, early in my career, uh, I started as a journalist. Uh, it, there was a serious discussion about whether a woman anchor, if people would actually believe the news, if, mm-hmm. if there was a woman anchor, to the point now where we look at Jacinda Ardern, uh, Angela Merkel, they are hitting it out of the park in terms of leadership. They are strong, they're empathetic, and they are doing what's right for their countries. And, you know, they have handled this pandemic. Um, it's a case study, really. It really is fantastic. It's it's it is inspirational, and I'm wondering if you think that that might translate to young women and young girls who are you know seeing these leaders really step up and and stand out among their their male politician counterparts. I I totally think that's the case. Uh, it's so important to see uh, women in, in roles of leadership and to normalize it. So it, you know, as soon as it's normalized, and and the discussion's not about. Can we have a woman leader? Can a woman be elected to the president of the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Can we, in Canada, elect uh, a woman prime minister? We had uh, Kim Campbell, uh, who was the head of the party and therefore became prime minister, but we've never elected one. And when we see so many women in, in leadership positions, and again, going back to Jacinda Ardern, she is phenomenal. She's young. Uh, and I interviewed her for the book. And um, one of the questions I asked, you know, tell me about your journey. And she talked about how she started in policy and um, did a lot of really interesting things. But then she said, you know, I struggle with anxiety and I can't imagine a world leader anywhere else. But she said, I just deal with it. I know I have it. I deal with it. I get on with it. And to have that kind of transparency, that kind of human element, and it doesn't stop her, Mm -hmm. uh, is a phenomenal thing for young women to see. They can do it. They really, they can do it. 
Stephanie, I'm wondering, uh, because uh, 2017 is only a few short years ago, and uh, what a difference a few years make as far as seeing uh, the increase in female politicians and leaders, not just, again, in our nation, but across the globe. I'm wondering, is there was there a turning point, or what changed the tides? Can you put your finger on something that uh, made this change? Well, I think that we're having more high-profile women leaders. I still think there's, um, you know, there's a disproportion in terms of, um, if you look at Parliament and the number of women. But we are getting to that critical point. Um, you know, I was involved in an organization called the 30% Club to get more women onto boards, corporate boards. And really the tipping point is at about a third, 30 to 33%. And that becomes, you know, the, the, the joke is one woman is a token, two, you can divide and conquer, three, you make an impact. So as you reach that uh, critical mass, it becomes normal. It's not like, oh, there's the woman politician. You know, what do women, she's going to represent what all women think. It's like, we like her or we don't like her. She's a politician. Yeah. She's a leader. So, Stephanie, your book, In Good Hands, it's written really to encourage young women to run for political office, isn't it? Or, or to get into leadership roles. Is that is that the intent behind it all? Absolutely. I think that uh, we often, as women, don't necessarily see ourselves as, as um, you know, running for politics or leadership. I think that is changing with uh, seeing more and more role models. But whether you want to run for class president just or the school, student government, or uh, maybe the local council, I interviewed a woman who at 21 unseated an incumbent in her town council, um, you know, it. Some of the, the same things are true, and one of the main things that I talked about in the book was self-confidence. I had a chance to um, ask a question of Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State in the U.S., and I, I, I asked her in a Q&A period, I said, what was your biggest challenge? And without blinking, she said self-doubt. And when I heard that, I couldn't believe my ears, and there was an audible gasp in the audience. She's the most, you know, she made life and death decisions. She made war and peace decisions, and she wrestled with it, and she told us how she dealt with it, and that was such a huge thing for me, and I think to know that even those most amazing, strong, forceful women struggle with it. It's just like Jacinda Ardern saying, yeah, I get anxiety, but I deal with it. They're humans, right? Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Stephanie. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. That is Stephanie McKendrick, author of In Good Hands, remarkable female politicians from around the world who showed up, spoke out, and made change. I think that I just actually got the book. I ordered it, so I haven't read it yet, but it sounds fantastic. It really intrigued me, and I thought it'd be a good thing for, you know, for me to talk to my daughter about, too, after I finish reading it. I think it's, you know, as she was saying, we need to normalize women in those lead political roles and other, you know, lead roles, whatever that might be, in order for girls to realize that, hey, I can do anything and it doesn't matter. Girls well, and boys, we're all equal. They should be able to do anything they want. Well, I'm not sure if Stephanie has a crystal ball, but yeah, even from 2017 to today, what a difference. Striking while the iron is hot. I mean, it's it's perfect timing for, for what's happening now in the world, how we're seeing and viewing and uh, appreciating the work of female politics, making such a huge difference so, I mean, I tell you what, the, the book is not only uh, you know, poignant, but timely. Uh, they, they, I'm sure she couldn't even imagine it ha- happening three years ago on uh, the state of the world today. So, no uh, outstanding. Uh, pick it up. Uh, as you mentioned, you can uh, anywhere online? Yep. 
7.09 and just days before marking the four-year anniversary of losing his home in the Fort McMurray wildfires, our next guest's new house is now flooded after spring ice breakup on the Athabasca and Clearwater Rivers sent water free-flowing into the downtown core in Fort Mac. We're joined this morning by Brian Jean, former leader of the Wild Rose Party in Fort McMurray. Hi, Brian. How are you this morning? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. My gosh, it's been a heartbreaking few years for you. How are you holding up with this latest disaster now that's hitting Fort McMurray? Uh, my heart is breaking for the families here that uh, are truly affected with young kids and going through something all over again. Can you paint a picture of what it looks like in your city right now, Brian? Well, it's very similar to the fire. There's nobody here except for emergency personnel, pretty much. Um, I'm on a bit of higher ground. I'm at my mother's house just pumping out the basement this morning again. Um, yesterday, it never moved more than four inches. And today, it appears that it's maybe moved down by about three inches. So we'll just wait and see what happens. It's uh, just a matter of time. But I'm fairly confident right now we've been able to keep out most of the water. It hasn't hit the upstairs at all. It's only uh, truly hit a small portion of the downstairs. We've been diligent on that, and it's been effective. So we're quite happy with that. This is a family home uh, for many years and has most of my mom's and dad's uh, and, frankly, my sister's. Many of our family mm. heirlooms in them, and we don't want to lose them. So we're trying everything we can. I, last night I stayed a, a block away. I have a business here, a, a car wash that's only a block away, and I stayed in there last night just to make sure that we were safe, but uh, kept checking and making sure that everything was going. Not much sleep and not a great sleep in front of your truck but it's a safe way to sleep right now no doubt so stressful how far away are you is your mom's home your home how far from the river are you where you're being flooded well i'm actually probably about uh, 100 meters but um but right now i'm it's in my front yard so um you know last night i took a video of a fish that i couldn't believe it it was probably a nine inch long fish that was right at the end of my driveway which was where ground zero of the water was it came right up to the end and scurried back um it was quite shocking to me being fort memory all of my life and seeing that for the first time um on a street that i usually walk up and down or take my dogs it's kind of interesting how about getting groceries for those people in, in the surrounding area even we'd heard originally that you know, half the city had uh, some grocery store access, the other half did not, and the demand would be uh, huge. Is getting food a problem at this point? I don't think anything's a problem with the people of Fort McMurray behind you. You know, we're resilient, we're hardworking, we're very safety conscious. Remember, there's decades and decades of training into the people here, and they are professionals. Uh, there is not going to be any hoarding or any running into lines or doing things that are ridiculous. You know, how many volunteers went to the hospital yesterday and the day before to um, make sandbags and just the amount of volunteers here? I'm not worried about people cooperating and getting along and doing what they need to do. It's just going to be the cleanup. And more than anything, I think the, the mental effect of having two situations yeah. like this, one after another, is going to be very hard for a lot of people. And I'm hoping that the government is there with all the supports necessary. And I certainly hope that the provincial government takes a look a seriously strong look at the other options that are available other than just waiting for the snow to melt. Uh, not necessarily this year, but future years. This happens every decade or so. And I mean, with the technology we have today, you'd think there'd be some other solution to what um, what we're doing than just waiting. And Brian, you know, we, we've been hearing that the, the ice jam and, and the chunks of ice are monstrous. The ice jam itself may be 25K long. Yes, in fact, it was about 32K, I believe, two days ago, and it's uh, now broken 
down by Fort or up by Fort Mackay and at Suncor. So now it's just a matter of time. It starts to filter away, and as long as we don't have any surprises uh, and the melt goes well and nothing, uh, no water tries to sneak past the ice, we should be fine. Uh, but you know, it's it's with bated breath and your fingernails are in your mouth constantly because you don't know. And, and let's face it, we're just humans. We have no ability to combat Mother Nature or God. And if the choice is there to flood my mom's home. It's it's there. All we can do is do our best. I am truly concerned about families, young families especially. Well, with the fires and now this flood, Brian, will you or, or really anybody in Fort McMurray, uh, you know, be able to afford insurance? What does this mean, you know, as far as having a home and uh, paying for uh, home insurance in the region? Well, certainly it's going to have some effect. I think that, uh, you know, the Alberta government has a responsibility on the insurance situation. We had quite a few troubles after the fire, and I don't remember anything being done that was effective in relation to an inspection of the insurance for fires. How many how many families uh, faced you know depression and suicide and uh, bankruptcy uh, as a result of the fire and, and what was done? Uh, you know we have great examples here in Fort McMurray of opportunities for the government to get it right, especially on insurance and make sure that people don't fall through the cracks because those are the people that are the, ultimately the most vulnerable, are not able to rebuild, are not able to afford insurance. I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to afford insurance. It's going to be expensive. You're right. Maybe I'll have to build a smaller house, but I'm going to live in Fort McMurray. I think it's the greatest place in the world to live. I think Alberta is fantastic. We won the lottery of life living here in Alberta and Fort McMurray. I think we have the best life that we could possibly have. Now, a couple setbacks for sure, but it's only going to make us stronger. I think it's going to make us appreciate what we have a lot more. And you don't really appreciate what you have until you lose it. Mm-hmm. Electricity, for instance. You know, I got up yesterday, if I can just say this, and I thought to myself, thank you, God, for all the energy workers in Alberta, in Canada, that make sure that I have a warm house, I have a cup of coffee in the morning, I can start my car, and I can go anywhere I want. You know, how many people don't have that opportunity? We have it so, so well here in Alberta, and I'm so proud to be an Albertan. Very well said. You know, and let's just take a step back to, you know, the mental health side of things. Are there are there things that are being offered to, to folks in the area right now? You mentioned families and kids, and we're in the midst of a pandemic. This is just kind of piling on top of. And if people need help up there in Fort Mac, what what's available to them? Well, right now, nothing's available downtown, um, you know, for the quarantine area. But the people that are leaving are registering. They are making sure that uh, they talk to the people uh, with the city and with the province and and uh, registering and it, they do have those options. I know they are available. They were available during the fire. I'm certain they're available now. I haven't left the downtown um, since the flood, so I don't know what's available outside of it. If you leave, you you are gone. And I right at this stage, I can't leave because there's just uh, too many things right here that uh, even though they're just it's just stuff, it's just things. The truth is that uh, I'm not going to risk life or any kind of injury, but I'm going to try to uh, save my home and save the 50 years of memory that are in the, the home. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Brian. Our thoughts are with you, your family, and all uh, Fort McMurray residents. Thank you, and thanks for all your support. To everybody in Alberta, thank you so much for what you do for the people of Fort McMurray that work so hard for all of us. Take and, care. Uh, God bless. Yeah, take care, Brian. That is Brian Jean, former leader of the Wild Rose Party. 618, uh, you know, on a kind of related note, this is interesting, uh, just been released that Netflix is going to release a surprise Michelle Obama documentary. 
It's coming out in May. Of course, Michelle Obama's memoirs, Becoming, her, her story, um, is actually what this film on Netflix will be called as well. So if you're a, a Michelle Obama fan, I have great respect for her. I think she did wonderful things as a first lady, and she was pretty darn cool as well. So um, <laughs> I think that'll be uh, one to watch for sure. Michelle Obama documentary coming out in May. Well, and I think what made her uh, stand out was the fact that she had these young girls, mm-hmm. um, and they included their kids in uh, a lot of what they were doing and i think that as a mother i mean oh, how many first ladies were mothers i mean it goes the list is a long one for sure but just that interaction and i think a lot of people could relate to her yeah. but it also <laughs> speaks to netflix with you know what we got to keep the attention of our viewers because yeah they have a lot of content but people have had a lot of free time <laughs> to watch so a lot of you see better be coming out with some new stuff it's nice to have some new nuggets there and uh, the one thing we've been talking about bits and pieces is the last dance with michael jordan as yeah, well i haven't seen it yet have you watched any no and they they're releasing what they do is espn it's an espn series and a documentary so they have their uh, i believe sunday night first run and then by Monday, you can watch the two episodes. I know Dave McIver's been watching it. Yeah. And the double episode, I, I wonder if they always planned to do it like that or if they were just going to do one a week and they just up the ante and they put out two, um, you know, per week type thing. So. I got to check it out myself. It looks fantastic. So uh, let's t- completely switch gears here. We are now uh, going to talk to uh, one of our reporters down in the Maritimes. You know, the RCMP, they've released a lot more information about Canada's worst mass shooting a week and a half ago. This morning, now we're going to get an update from Global's anchor and reporter in Halifax, Sarah Ritchie. Hi, Sarah. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Can you run down some of the latest information that police have shared about the gunman's rampage? For sure, yeah. RCMP have released a little bit more detail about the timeline. So they first gave us a timeline of the shooter's movements last week, but there were some significant gaps. For instance, we didn't know what he was doing all night, Saturday night, or where he was early in the morning. And we now have a clearer picture of that thanks to surveillance images that RCMP have been pulling from surveillance cameras around the province, including uh, people's own door cameras or porch cameras. So what they have found at this point is that the gun gunman actually left the area in Port-a-Pic where all of this began just nine minutes after police arrived. Police got onto the scene at about 10.26 p.m. They say they found 13 victims and three structures on fire. We now know a witness saw the gunman leaving the area driving through a field in his mock RCMP cruiser just nine minutes later. He drove to a nearby community about 25 kilometers away and he spent several hours that night in an industrial area. We don't know exactly what he was doing, but he didn't leave until about 5.30 the next morning when he headed for Wentworth, and that's where he targeted two of his next victims. What do we know uh, about the weapons uh, that the uh, gunman used and the police uniform, maybe even the cruiser? Uh, How did he attain these items, and, uh, you know, uh, where did he, uh, what type of weapons was he using? We still have lots of questions yet to be answered in all of this. And I will say that police mentioned yesterday that part of the reason why they're holding back some of the information is because they have so many witnesses they need to interview. 435 people are on that witness list. They're about halfway through. 
Yeah, it's stunning, really. So as they try to interview these witnesses, what they don't want is for the media to be releasing and publicizing information that they want to be able to hear from the witnesses. So in terms of the police uniforms and the vehicles, they say the police uniforms were actually pieces of authentic uniforms. Still unclear how he came upon those. But they do say that he was a collector of sorts, and sometimes RCMP uniforms are sold at surplus. As for the cruisers, well, there were four police cruisers, four vehicles that he bought at auction. They were old police vehicles. But the one that he decked out to look just like an RCMP vehicle and used in this rampage, that one he obtained just in the fall of 2019. And police are still working to piece together exactly how he got the decals and the light bar that were on it that made it look so convincingly real. There's been talk certainly of, of charges potentially being laid if anybody else helped him out. So we'll be waiting. We'll be checking in with you, no doubt, once again. Thanks for joining us this morning. Sarah. Thank you. That's global anchor and reporter in Halifax, Sarah Ritchie. Nine now, uh, just a reminder that the Prime Minister will speak at nine o'clock this morning, nine o'clock our time. Uh, joining us this morning, Dr. Farah Sunderji. She is uh, the, uh, we're talking optometry, first of all. Uh, and optometrists are urging Calgarians to seek urgent care if they're experiencing concerns, despite the fact we are in the midst of this pandemic. So it's important that we talk about eye care and that it is available to us. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. I, I know optometrists across Alberta still are available for patients. Can you can you sort of run down what urgent care would cover if people are having any issues? Sure. So if you're experiencing any vision or eye health issues, such as an eye infection, an eye injury or trauma to the eye, a foreign object in the eye, a sudden change in vision or flashes of lights and floaters, you should call or email your optometrist immediately. Tell us what's going on so we can help triage you and determine the best care for you. There are optometrists doing telehealth consultations over the phone, so it's important to reach out and get in touch with us. We've heard uh, with dentists, uh, Dr. Sunderji, that not every dental office is open, but if it's an emergency, select uh, offices are open. You'd be directed to one of those, uh, you know, sites. Is that the same when it comes to optometry? For sure. So if you have an optometrist, you can call or email us. If you don't have an optometrist, then it's really simple. You can visit optometrist.ab.ca and put in your postal code and it will find an optometrist close to your home that is providing urgent care. Dr. Sundarji, post-pandemic, how does this change things in the optometry world? Well, right now, I mean, there are a number of protocols that all optometry clinics are doing to protect our patients, doctors and staff, starting with screening patients over the phone and in person. Um, we're doing hand sanitizing, we're using gloves and masks, we're disinfecting equipment and furniture in the office, we're using protective shields on our equipment, and we're also limiting the number of patients coming in at the clinic. And this is in compliance with Alberta Health Services as we want to ensure the safety of everyone while we're providing eye care. So I see us using this going forward as well. As far as those folks who don't have uh, vision issues at this point and uh, looking ahead, just to recap, how often should an adult be uh, visiting an optometrist and how often should a child be? We recommend yearly exams because your vision is constantly changing. So yearly exams for all age groups. 
Okay, perfect. Well, we'll be you know keeping an eye on things as to when we are starting to see businesses open up, but people should know that their optometrist is available should they need some care. So thank you for joining us and breaking down what uh, is still available for folks. No problems. That's Dr. Farah Sunderji, optometrist, and you can go to I-E-Y-E, iDology.ca if you want more information.